Welcome to another virtual author chat at the Poison Pen Bookstore. I'm John Charles, and today the Poison Pen's special guest author is Winter Austin, whose new book is Straight for the Kill. Before we begin, for those listening in, I would like to let them know if you'd like a copy of Winter's new book or the previous titles in this series, just give us a call at the Poison Pen or go online to our website, and we would be happy to hold them for you or put them in the mail. And now, without further ado, I'd like to welcome Winter. Hi. It's great to have you here. Um, let's start by having you tell us a little bit about who Winter was before she became a published author. Winter was a girl growing up on a farm in the middle of nowhere, Iowa, southeast Iowa, who had a big dream even from a very young age. And so uh, it took getting married, having kids, and spending time at home to start getting it going. So um, yeah, that it took about 10, 14 years for me to actually get my first book published. And it was a very long, arduous process. It took uh, quite a few moves to different states and my husband deploying before, you know, it really got going. So, and now here I am, I just celebrated uh, 10 years being published uh, late last year, early this year. It was in 2012, I signed my first contract and uh, just released Straight for the Kill uh, this week, so. Congratulations. Um, is it safe to say that Walter Farley is responsible for you becoming an author? He probably a good chunk of why I'm <laughs> an author. Uh, I read The Black Stallion when I was in fourth grade, and that year was the year that we had a um, a little contest to see who would go to the Young Writers Conference that we have in our area. It's held at a local uh, college. And uh, I wrote a little story that was based off of a dream that was a mystery in essence. And uh, I got, I won a slot to be able to go. And that is what cemented my love for writing and wanting to be an author. So going and experiencing that. And in fact, I can't remember if it was my elementary um, stint when I went to that conference or if it was my high school. I went again and when I was in high school. And I met a local author, went to one of her workshops. And ironically enough, we did a book signing at a local um, historic general store here back in October. And I finally got to tell her, hey, you are kind of, you know, I'd like, you're a local author and you could do it. What was stopping me from doing it? And so we're getting together again here in February to do a little like tea party and book talk too so uh, she actually asked if I would be interested in coming and doing that with her and so we're going to do that together that's great yep if I understand correctly from what I've read initially you wanted to be a writer but like many people you were kind of given feedback or other people hinted to you or you somehow got the idea that this was not a valid career path a lucrative career path a successful oh yeah talk about the uh your family members saying you can't make any money off of this. You should be going to college and getting a, a legitimate degree and some, uh, you know, career. And I said, you can tell me all you want, but I'm going to do what I want to do. And this is what I want to be and do. And so uh, I learned a lot of my stuff on my own 
and for free, not having to go through a college path to do so. And I had the talent and the drive and the know-how. I'm always the type of person that when you tell me I can't do something, I say, yeah, right. I'm going to prove you wrong. So, yeah. What was publishing your first book like? You said it had taken 10 years or so to get. Yeah, it was about four. I, if I calculated correctly, um, when I really, really started to be serious about it, uh, I had twins for my first set of kids. And they were, what, six, eight months old when I finally decided I'm going to be serious about this. And so by the time they turned 14 was when I finally had my first book published. So it was about a 14-year process of learning and educating myself and finding the right people to get me to where I needed to be and get those books um, bought and you know sold and a publishing contract for it. Um, when the first book released, actually, I have a little weird, it was a little weird situation. I signed a contract with, uh, it was like a group of authors, and we did a little um, novella type collection. That was signed before my first real books were signed in, and it was with a different publishing house, and it was under my regular name. It wasn't under a pen name. Um, that actually released after the book that I got signed under my pen name, and that was in February. So this February, um, it'll be 10 years since my first book released. And it was kind of a ho-ho-hum, you know, nothing big. I mean, it was, it was around the same time as um, Mardi Gras, and I'd spent quite a bit, of, I kind of got into the whole um, culture of Louisiana and stuff because I had characters that were from there and my writing partner lives in Louisiana and so I had spent the previous summer with her doing some research for one of the books and so I'm like I made my first pot of gumbo and a king cake and that was how we celebrated. <laughs> um, well let's talk about the book that brought you here today it's the latest in your Benet and Dane series? Was that Benet and Dane, yep. Um, Straight for the Kill. What can you tell us about um, the series and about the latest edition? This series was kind of a out of the left field, if you want. Um, so I wasn't really initially planning on writing anything. When this concept came about, it was just an idea in my head. And um, in 2019, I had fired an agent who wasn't doing her job. And so I said, I'm done. I had lost my publishing house the previous year. I had gone through a lot of eye surgeries because I had cataracts and retina detachments. And so I had a time, had a chance to actually step back and realize what is it that I really want to be writing and who do I really want to be writing with? And so I had to pick publishing houses that were not looking for authors who were agented yeah. um editor that I had become really close with and we worked really well together worked at Thule and so I talked with her and we decided that I was going to try Thule so I sent what I had at the time fully written was a military romantic thriller loved it but they didn't know how to market it it wasn't something that they had you know, tested the waters with. They were looking for straight mysteries, um, something that fell into the police procedural, domestic thrillers, you know, those type of things. And they're like, do you have anything else? 
you know? And I said, well, I don't have anything completed, but I have like these ideas. So I sent them a couple of samples of what I had and Benet and Dane was just literally a paragraph, a synopsis and a character list. And that was it. And that was the one they wanted. And I'm like, okay, so, you know, I just put on, put the stops on everything else and start developing. So we pushed publication date out way far for um, the first book, The Killer and Me. And uh, that gave me time to write on it. Well, in the process, I also did end up um, selling the military romantic thriller to another publishing house, but it was already done. So I didn't have to worry about anything on that one. Uh, <clears throat> that started out, I wanted a little bit of an idea of what it's like to be small town, but it's not like your Debbie Maycomb or romancy, you know, mm -hmm. type of idea. I had already written a series that was more of a romantic suspense series for a previous publishing house that was set in my area. And I'm finding it's a lot easier to write in a setting of where I live. Yeah, because I can give you the descriptions and give you the feel of the environment around here a lot better than say somewhere I've never been before and I have to do a research trip for, but uh, that kind of progressed from there. So I am a, I'm, I'm learning new names for this, but I've always told, called myself an organic pantser. I don't <laughs> outline the books. I don't, I mean, I, I come up with scene ideas and I write towards that scene. Um, you typically, I would like to have, okay, how's the, how's the book going to end? You know, who is actually the bad guy who, who ends, you know, ends up saving the day type of thing, or um, how does it all come to an end? I did not have that with the first book. I didn't really have it with the second and I did not have it with straight for the kill. So these these three books have really pulled something out of me that I have not experienced before, but it's also made me step back and realize I'm kind of just winging it too much and I need to go back to learning the craft, going back to the things that helped me develop characters and things like that better. So the next you know, books, but obviously by the reviews that are coming out already, obviously I'm doing something right because everybody's falling in love with the characters. And I also had always wanted to do something that was very female centered, centered, stronger female characters that are, you know, still broken and, you know, need something, but, you know, they don't need a guy to come save the day. They're quite capable of doing it themselves. And so, it's kind of as my best friend told me made me kick ass <laughs> in a way and so that's what I wanted to do so uh that both I mean both of those characters Benet Elizabeth Benet and Lila Dane are both broken in some form or fashion uh it's just pulling on that and I'm having to learn with the series that you can only touch on one little broken piece at a time you can't cover everything because if you want that to continue, it's it's little bits and pieces at a time. So who who is Elizabeth and who is Lila? Tell us a little El bit about them. Okay, Elizabeth Benet is um, the sheriff of this little town, the little county in southeast Iowa. I called Eckerd, and she lives in the town of Juniper, but that's where she's from. And she grew up there, but right after she graduated from high school, she decided to run off with her 
then boyfriend who was going into the army and um, married him and spent, you know, a good chunk of her adult life traveling the world with her husband, who eventually um, moved through the ranks and became a Delta operator. Um, so like three or four years prior to the beginning of The Killer and Me, she divorced him and moved back home. And so she got asked to become the sheriff with no prior criminal knowledge, you know, no justice degree or whatever. But she was that type of person that she was never satisfied with the status quo. So she's always learned something new. And when she, when her best friend was killed, um, you know, a couple of years after they graduated from high school, she made it a vow that she would find out who actually did it because it was just kind of written off as an accidental death, you know, and it, she never believed that it really was. And so that was part of what got her to become the sheriff. And so, and in our little world, and in every place, sheriffs are voted in. And so she managed to convince enough people in the community to vote her in and kick out what they considered the corrupt sheriff that she took over for but he's always been that thorn in her side and I I don't want him to go away so I'm kind of I really enjoyed watching Justified I like the books but I like tv series better and I always wanted to have that little um headbutting part between Elizabeth and Kelly Sheehan who is the former sheriff that she took over kind of like the whole um Raylan Givens and um I can't think of his name at the moment. Um, the guy that used to be his friend, oh. Walt Goggins, played in the sh in the series. Um, it'll come to me later. But I, that that constant headbutting, kind of intervening, intertwining uh, storylines between the two. So I know a lot of people, my editor especially, was hoping that in book three I would finally throw Kelly into jail. <laughs> no, that's not how it ended. <laughs> Spoiler alert. But anyway. Um, I want him to continue to kind of just be that person that kind of just makes her rethink, you know, the world isn't always black and white. Mm -hmm. There's some gray to it. And you have to find out how to navigate it. And Lila Dane is a former Chicago detective who had a very bad experience, almost died and decided that she couldn't live there anymore. And so they kind of moved her into this place where she thought she'd be safe. And that's back in book two, Hush My Darling, kind of discusses her, her little backstory. Um, she's no nonsense, but she's also very tight-lipped. She's had a very rough childhood. I'm planning on kind of developing her backstory a little bit more, have some things pop out with her in future books, cross my fingers. And um, so, so she's not somebody... She was a harder nut to crack than Elizabeth was, and there's still things about her that I have to do some research on and pull from. Uh, my editor, when she was editing Hush, My Darling, or maybe it was The Killer and Me, she had been watching Chicago PD at the time, and she equated Lila to one of the uh, characters on there. And now that's all I see is, like, is, is her being that character. But I don't want their lives to be so much similar. I have to be careful that I don't pull stuff from somewhere else. So I want her to be her own person. Um, so I'm kind of getting her 
on level ground living where she is now and becoming part but in our area which is what I kind of push in the books that you're considered an outsider if you were not born and raised here and you you can't trace your family roots back so far so she'll always be an outsider even though she might you know people might you know like her in the community even if she were to marry somebody from the community who has a long family here she's still going to be that outsider so I like kind of using that because it kind of makes it stops and makes people think she has a different perspective yeah um let's talk a little bit about setting um for this series if I understand correctly originally you planned to set it in the New Orleans area this one yeah a more rural Louisiana um the corruption down there is just unbelievable and I was kind of contemplating doing it that way but when I got asked by Thule I kind of changed my mind and said no I think I'm going to put it here because I mean our area is not immune to corruption. It's not immune to the old good old boy network where, you know, you pat my back, I'll pat yours. Um, so I'm like, I can still bring that out and still be able to use it and put it in my area. So um, I had also decided to put something else in um, Louisiana. So that helped too, because I still want to go back there. I really like the state and I really like, um, the the culture aspect of it and the, how many it's and it helps that I have somebody who lives there and if I have a question all I have to do is ask her and she'll tell me and if she doesn't know she knows someone who can so um but I'm gonna save that for something else instead of this and now the con the idea is like do I continue to write everything I write in southeast Iowa or do I you know, play around in different areas. So that's kind of an, I, I got to keep in mind later on. So and planning on making this a long time career. So. <laughs> um, well, I think one of the things that this series illustrates that you have talked about is that sometimes there's this misperception about rural America, about small towns, that they're idyllic, that crime doesn't touch them, that it's the big cities where all the bad things happen. And you kind of illustrate that no, crime is universal. Yeah, and things like um, trafficking and drug use and things like that, we aren't immune to it. Um, and I, I just, I still laugh because I had one of my books that was set in Southeast Iowa, I had somebody from the inner city, I won't name the city, um, actually quit reading the book because they couldn't believe that people were that rude and you know they didn't intervene and they were so snobbish and they didn't help this character and I'm like that just shows how ignorant you are that you think that your big city is the only you know big cities are the only places where these things can happen and they're not um, especially around here because that character in particular had severe PTSD and I we have a unit here in Fairfield that was in Iraq when we first entered Iraq and there were guys that witnessed you know fellow squad mates be killed by IEDs in their trucks and then they had to take their bodies out of those trucks I'm hearing these stories and I'm not in the military I was just married to it but 
like a lot of the guys that my husband deployed with, and I kept asking him, why do you guys, why are you so comfortable telling me stories that, you know, no one else will hear? No one. I'm just one of them. I spend enough time around them. I can talk their talk and their lingo, and they just feel comfortable enough to tell me these stories. So it's, we're, even in these little places, we have people who have these kind of life experiences that they bring here. And I've noticed with places like ID Network, um, A&E, a lot of these that do these true crime, they're starting to go into the small towns like murder in the heartland or, you know, small town type stuff and showing, yeah, this stuff can happen. Mm -hmm. um, we have a local town called Mount Pleasant where they have a, a missing woman that they've never found her body, but they prosecuted and threw the man who supposedly killed her in jail, even without her body. And to this day, they still can't, he won't tell them where she's at. And so this, it happened in a place where people are like, this doesn't happen here. Yeah, it does. When you combine many, many types of different peoples, you get many types of things, but our area is more likely to try and keep it hush hush, which is what I'm trying to show in my books that you know, we still have this mindset, let's just not intervene. Let's just not get involved. Well, maybe it's time that we start getting involved. Um, the books are kind of a procedural type of um, mystery because they involve law enforcement officials. What kinds of research do you have to do to make sure you get those details right? I have quite a few friends who are actually in law enforcement and I tap them. I'll give them scenes and say, would you have done this? Or how would you have done this? Um, what did I do wrong? What did I do right? Uh, I've got connections. You know, I'm, I'm part of groups called crime scene writers where we have just a plethora of forensic people, detectives, retired police officers. We have a private investigator in there, um, just all kinds of things. And so if you if you know where to dig, if you have a, the same type of question that somebody might have already asked and you know where to dig, you can find the answer without having to ask it. Well, sometimes you do have to ask it. So uh, I go there. I do have a lot of books too that I've bought over the years that I'll go back to. But a lot of it anymore, it's spending more time. It's it's kind of regurgitating what I already know. So the more books I write, the more the knowledge that I've already gained helps me. Um, in fact, one time I even talked with a sheriff's department who was a sniper for their sheriff's department. So a lot of what he taught me, I keep for a lot of stuff. Um, in this day and age of the internet accessing everything, it's not too hard to put a Google in and search and find a legitimate person who actually knows what they're talking about. And so if I can't find the right answer, I know where to go to ask it. So um, I would like a little bit more knowledge on medical examiners type stuff, coroner type stuff and kind of knock on wood. I have a child who's interested in it. I'm hoping he goes into that so that I can just say, hey, I need them some help here, but I'm still waiting for him to make that decision. So he's kind of juggling different ideas, but he's leaning towards being a mortician, which also could put him in a position of being a coroner too. So he's always been interested in that. And so, but other than that, it's mostly just experience talking with people, having the right connections and, and using them. What? With all the research you've done into how sheriff's departments operate, 
in law enforcement in small rural areas. What surprised you the most as you went through all this research about their job? Yeah, um, probably not realizing how many of them actually have no law enforcement background. Huh? Um, some of them didn't even go to college in the criminal justice program and they just went through the um, academy. So around here, they have to go through an academy that takes place in Des Moines. And once they're finished there, they can get in. Um, the other thing that surprised me is that we have a lot of uh, sheriffs who have no law enforcement background either. But law, you know, sheriffs is mostly just um, administrative stuff. So if you, you, you know, you know how to handle administrative stuff, then it's, and I go, well, that kind of benefited me because then I could make Elizabeth be a sheriff without having that prior law enforcement background and making her kind of a duck out of water in some cases where she doesn't know what she's supposed to do, but she's smart enough to know to surround herself with people who do and can teach her and she's always learning. So, but I mean, We've had, I've had personal experience with law enforcement around here for other reasons. And it's, it's good to know that you got some that they really do care. And just like in big cities with police departments, you got some who it's just a job to them and they could care less, you know, you're just another, you know, call or whatever, but, um, and I did, and I don't want to portray that with my characters, but I, I keep that in mind because that is something that it does happen. So we need that there. What, um, I know authors sometimes hate this question, but you must have different sources of inspiration. And I think in your case, you're inspired by many different things, including true crime podcasts. Yes. One source. Yeah. <laughs> crime junkie. And I'm pretty sure if this ever gets out there, Ashley Flowers will probably be jumping all over. But I love crime junkie. And I spend many trips back and forth to my day job listening to the podcasts. And uh, Anatomy of Murder is a really good one, too, because it uses a homicide prosecutor, a retired homicide prosecutor, and a guy who did work in the sheriff's department. He was also a criminal um, journalist, and he also was a canine when he was in the sheriff's department. He worked canine. So they talk about the the like they say the anatomy of the murder, the anatomy of how the police department or detectives or sheriff's department or FBI they've had NCIS people on there. Um, how they investigated the the crime and where they got to when they went to trial and how they got that part. And so that helps me too. Um, I do read a lot. I like to read people who write in my genre. I like to read outside of it too, or I spend a lot of time. I try not to get too involved in a lot of like dramas that involve around crime and criminal stuff, but I do like a few of them and I'm like, there to watch it no just knowing that I can't can't believe everything that's being there because I know enough um about how things are done and how you know where it goes and stuff like that how much time actually passes between things uh but I that's usually what I do a lot of the time it is talking with people watching I pay attention to the news because a lot of the storylines that I come with, they're actually, it's something that actually did happen. Um, and then 
I just take my spin on it, try to, you know, take it a different direction. One book, uh, while my husband was deployed, and I've talked about this a lot, we had a murder um, occur in my hometown. And the, eventually it came out that it was the son. He literally murdered his parents and his two sisters, three sisters. And he claims he never did it. And, but, you know, everybody's going to, but there was just too much evidence to prove that he had. Um, and I swore when that happened, I was going to write something similar to it. And I did, and I, I did my little spin on it, but I reminded people that, you know, this was a small town that had never seen anything like this ever happen. I mean, this town was has a population of 200 people. Uh-huh. And one man just decided that he didn't like that dad was cutting him out of the will. Uh-huh. And, you know, he got less time for killing his dad and his sisters, but he got way more time for killing his mother because his mother had always been trying to help him. Uh-huh. And it, it so that that came about and I, I followed that and I did that storyline and put my spin on it. But, you know, I did write an acknowledgement in the book to say that this is what inspired this storyline. Um, we've had, um, Fairfield became very well known about a year ago when we had a teacher murdered by students okay. and we became on a national spotlight. And so, I've had a couple people say, are you going to bring something up with it? I said, not right now, because this is still too raw. Yeah. Uh, this woman was, my husband's a teacher too, and her classroom was kitty corner to his. Oh. And so that's how close we are to the, I mean, it's not like we're, you know, we were really good friends with her, but it's, it's, it's very raw. And these, these students, <laughs> It's weird because when I was at work, when the news broke that they found it, people were pulling up the kids' mug shots. And I just look at it, I go, I've spent too much time watching true crime stuff. I just, the the looks on their faces, it was just, one looked like he was completely defeated and beaten. So I'm sitting here going, you were the one, you were, you were manipulated into doing this. Yeah. And the other one is just the look on his face. I'm like, you masterminded this whole thing. And, you know, they're still claiming that they didn't do it, but there's so much evidence. And just recently, like this past week, a judge threw out their um, affidavit, I guess it was to throw out the evidence, some of the evidence. And it was the cell phone evidence that they were given, the cops were given by other people to prove that they had plotted this. So, yeah. It's surprising you mentioned these things that are very recent cases, but you can almost go back in history and see parallels. You were talking about these mm-hmm. two cases, and I'm thinking of In Cold Blood and how people were shocked by that small Kansas town when yeah. a family was brutally murdered that had never happened. And you talk about these teenagers um, plotting, and I'm referencing Leopold and Loeb. Yeah. In, the more things change, the more things they stay the same. Yeah. And it just, I think what threw everybody in this town was that they always get this mindset that it's not going to happen here. And I'm like, you can't, you can't think like that. 
because it will happen. And when it does, it's, it's going to be traumatizing. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, for a very long time, a lot of the teachers were scared to go to work because they thought that they were next. And, um, my, my husband, it, it's a different thing with a man and somebody who has a military background and he's always grown up around weapons and things. So he knows what to do and how to handle it. He, his protective mode came in to play. And so a lot of the teachers that were on his floor are female. And so if they, you know, needed, they, they knew that he was there. And so that kind of reassured them, but it made everyone look at every student with suspicion. Mm -hmm. And um, it, it just, it kind of threw everything. So we've had, it, you know, we have the typical shockers where people have committed suicide and everybody's like, well, we didn't see it coming, but the family's like, well, we kind of did, but we didn't think it was actually going to happen, mm -hmm. you know? And so there's a lot of mental health uh, discussions that need to be made in small towns. And so that kind of plays into like what you said, people could be sitting there, they have access, these kids have access to everything all over the internet. And you would not, a lot of people don't stop and think, and I have a kid who could do it if you wanted to get on the dark web. It's not that hard. And they play around with these, this technology enough, they know exactly what they're doing. And so um, in fact, at the end of the year, this past year, we had a potential for a school shooting. Yeah. One of the elementaries, um, they spotted a man running around the elementary with a gun. Oh. And this was not, this was not even, I think it was like three days after that one shooting. And that, I can't think of the town at the moment, um, that happened in May. Oh. And so that freaked everybody out, which you know, but the, the upside to it is our police departments responded instantaneously hmm. and the kids, you know, some of the kids were scared, but the teachers had been taught this, what to do in these situations. So, um, what freaked me out was that it was my niece's school hmm. and her mom is there getting ready to pick her up. It was at the end of the day, this was the last day of school and this hmm. happened. So, you know, the, even in our little area, things like this will happen. And I, you know, I want that. And I mean, I was watching something and I was just thinking, I want that to happen. So I think I'm going to write about that. And I'm going, please don't let that really happen. <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> that, that helps. So, yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about your writing. I know that over the last few years or so, there's been buzz from publishers and authors and people in the business about what an author's brand is. If someone has not read your books, how would you describe their your brand, your flavor? What can they expect from your writing? Uh, this is what my editor always says when she goes, when she gets a manuscript from me, she knows she's going to get the winter Austin experience. And that is, I'm going to start you off slow and then I'm going to hit you, bam, 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 bam. So I like a lot of action in my stories. And so I don't have a whole lot of slow time. Um, but when, it, when I realize I have too much going on, I know I got to back off and put some slow time in. So you're, there's going to be lots of secrets in there. Um, secrets are going to be exposed. 
and there's going to be some kind of action. I don't think I've ever written a book where there wasn't some kind of a fight scene in it, <laughs> you know, and, um, and if I did, it was probably a book that I will never talk about. Um, so it my it's, it's going to be gritty. It's going to be dark. It's going to be gut punching and it's going to be a reality check. Um, I try. So, uh, I'm in Cincy, uh, Iowa chapter, and we're actually going through as a craft book. One of the, one of the books is called the linchpin writer. And, uh, for a while there, I taught a class at the Young Writers Conference where I went to. I was teaching a workshop on great opening lines. And so the first chapter we were talking about was about opening paragraphs. So I agonized really over my opening line and my opening paragraph to kind of get, get you sucked in. And so it, you know, my favorite one was the one where I had a character who was so many days sober and so many days, you know, I had, I had it all figured out and my editor goes, I really like that opening. And I'm like, well, we're going to keep it. <laughs> it took me a while to come up with that one, but I, I don't get really going into the books unless I have that opening chapter or that opening paragraph, right. So I know where I'm going. Um, but yeah, brand is hard nobody really wants to like pigeonhole themselves because a lot of us want to be able to be able to write in a different genre you know mm -hmm. and we want our readers to follow us so I, I just I tack on I say my brand is my name and um and it is because it gets a lot of questions mm -hmm. and I got lots of answers for it but it's I I I started out in the romance genre and I think, and I've got more and more people are just saying, you're just better writer in the mystery and thrillers. And I said, that's where I always wanted to be. Uh, in fact, I had a former um, editor, acquisitions editor, <laughs> go, why are you writing in romance in the first place? I said, well, I worked really hard to figure out how to balance it between the suspense and the romance. I would like to continue, but I realized this just, it wasn't where I wanted to be. And so now I'm like, but I'm not alone. I know a lot of the great authors that I love to read, they started out in something else and moved into where they are now. And so now I'm just trying to get my name recognition out there and hope I can get more people to come and pick me up. So I have good friends that I tap on that, you know, try to get to read my books, but I also know authors don't have time because we're busy. <laughs> Some of us like me, they're juggling a bunch of other stuff on the other side. And, um, but it'd be nice to be able to have that one person I really admire, give me an endorsement, um, that all I can do is ask and, you know, and go from there. Hope for the best. Yeah. Yep. Um, you mentioned authors that you enjoy reading as a reader. Who are some of the authors in the past that spurred you into wanting to write? Who are some of your favorites today? Um, what are you looking forward to reading this year, 2023? Yeah. So police procedural wise, I cannot think of her name. So our high school library had a lot of their books. It was a, a woman that was a New York detective. And I really enjoyed reading those. And those that was like throughout they were older books. They were, I think, published in the late 70s and 80s, and then during the 80s. 
So you have that kind of mindset that that old school stuff, mm-hmm. but I, for the life of me, I have tried, I've tried and tried and tried researching. I cannot think of the author's name. It was and a series I, of books. It was a, it was a big series. I can't even think of the characters' names in there. I just remember it was what really stuck out to me was that the character, the main character was a female and she was like the first female detective in the NYPD. And it wasn't based, you know, I don't even think she really based it off of an any true incident. And so that, that mix of police procedural and mystery really, I really loved it. And so that's what kind of drove me to kind of reading those things. Um, I mean, Walter Farley by far was, you know, I read his bio on how he became an author and I'm like, I'm going to do that. Well, Grant and I didn't get published when I was in my early twenties, but still it was, you know, if he can do it, I can too. Uh, I didn't, I mean, for a while there, I would write stuff that had animals in it. I still, I still do. I mean, Mm -hmm. most of my books have a dog at least. So, (laughs) um, but so more recently through the years and more recently, um, people that have really, I've really been inspired by Craig Johnson with his Walt Longmire series. Uh, I do read Tess Gerritsen. I really love the Rizzoli and Isles. Um, even though my husband just kind of laughs at me, he's like, you read every book. Why are you watching the TV series? Because it's different. Yeah. And I like, I like Angie Harmon. <laughs> so yeah. Um, more recently I've started getting into the Regency mysteries. So like C.S. Harris with her, uh, Viscount St. Cry. Yeah. And, um, I'm trying to think of the author's name. And it's eluding me. Her character, she has like the upstanding um, gentleman, the Lord. And then this woman who was kind of, you know, she was from that background and then she left her family and she's an artist. And so she kind of was doing- Oh, that's um, Huber. I think the author is H-U-B-E-R. I can't think of her first name, but yeah. Yeah, because the the woman was married originally. And yeah, and then he died, died and he was an artist. Yes, yeah. He, um, yeah, I can think of, I can just see the covers and I can think of the last name and. Yeah, I can see know. the covers too. So, yeah. you know, that, those I really, really have really enjoyed reading. Um, there's a Victorian set, um, Dearborn is the last name of the author I can't think of her first name at the moment and hers are females and so anything that kind of has a female lead I'm leaning towards but I do like those old old school with the guys you know the un, un, unsuspecting CJ Box with the Joe Pickett's uh who's the other one I started to read the the, the author's first name is Mark and his guy his guy is a uh, federal uh, Marshall, mm. who's been, it's in Alaska. Mm. And so those, Mark Carmen, I think. Carmen, I think might be it. Yeah. yeah. I started reading those. I'd like them. I just haven't got back into them because there's so many other things that I'm wanting to read. And I've got to go back sometimes, you know, got to reread my books to make sure I'm not missing like, something. Doubling up on something yeah. or, you know, co- making uh, continuancies through it and no conflicts or, you know, like 
oh, I had this character doing this in this book, and then all of a sudden it's completely forgotten, you know, or, you know, that type of thing. So the, the really, I love Craig Johnson. I love Walt's um, whole demeanor. And it's an old guy still doing this job and wondering why he's still doing it, you know, um, kind of the old school type of thing. Mm-hmm. And so self-deprecating. I like it when characters are self-deprecating because they can make fun of themselves. Yeah. So there's there's a lot of authors, so many of them that I read. Um, I'm also trying to get caught up on fellow Thule members books and stuff. Uh, I used to read Cozy Mysteries, but I've gotten out of that. And it's nothing against them. It's just, it's not my, it's not my tea. Yeah. And so I like to read in something that helps me write what I write. Uh, I'm also much, much, much into the thrillers. And so I've been reading Jack Carr a lot, uh, Brad Thor, and those kind of guys. So, I mean, there's still a little bit of a mystery to it, but in thrillers, you can actually give out a little bit more to the reader where it, I don't, I like to kind of hold back and I, I don't want my readers to figure out what I actually know. Sometimes as I'm writing, I don't know what's going on. <laughs> and it's not until I get to that scene or to the end of the book, like in Killer and Me, I really wasn't sure who actually was the baddie. And my best friend was ready. She goes, cause she's my beta reader. And she's like, no, you need to have it this person. You have it. No, this doesn't work for this one. So she's usually my go-to on that to make sure you know, and if I can't get, if her and my writing partner can't figure out who it is, I know I've got it. Mm. So, and my best friend spends a lot of time. She was a librarian for many, many years. She reads all the type of books that I write, type of write. So she knows how to catch me on something and make sure, but I, if I can keep them from guessing who it actually is, then I know I've got it. So. That's great. Um, What's next for you as an author? Right now, I'm actually writing on the third book in my Hera Force series, which is for my other publisher. Um, And then I'm working on some projects for Thule that I haven't, you know, where to go yet type of thing. So, in fact, my this weekend, my husband and I had some very long conversations, mostly about his career. (laughs) But (laughs) I'm like, well, what about mine? (laughs) So... Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling. I, I get frustrated with myself because um, I like my day job, but I want to be able to be just a full-time author. Mm-hmm. And in this current state of affairs with our industry and with, you know, just everything with the economy, it's like, I can't justify that because I make more money working than I do as a publisher, the published author. So I, you know, that, that paycheck does help pay for things that I need to do as a pub, as, as an author, but it takes a lot out of me. It drains me. It takes time away when I would rather be home writing. And, um, so I just, it's one of these things that I've got, I've got to make some hard decisions decisions and make some hard discussions with some people mm-hmm. just like I was telling my husband he has to make some hard decisions and some hard discussions with people so uh, we're both of that generation where we're just not not satisfied with the status quo mm-hmm. so 
we, you know, and we're both now empty nesters, all of our kids are moved out. So we can make decisions now that aren't based on what's good for the kids. It's now it's what's best for us. So, but, you know, it's, yeah, it, I love the industry, but I also watch it very closely and I know it's hard. It's very hard in this day and age. How can readers learn more about your books? Are you on social media? I am pretty active on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, I, I am on Twitter, but I don't spend a whole lot of time there. If I'm on Twitter, it's catching up on my beloved Iowa State because they're probably playing a game and Twitter's a little bit faster with the information than somewhere else because I'm somewhere where I can't watch it or hear it. So, um, and then I do have a website, but um, it's about time to start updating it too. Uh, I had a whole series, I pulled a whole series down that I had got the rights back to and self-published and I'm going to republish it. This is a big announcement, uh, republishing it under my other publisher, the Turgeer publisher in um, Ireland. And we're, we're going to be working on releasing those. I think we're just going to release the whole series as one. This is the one series that I had set in Southeast Iowa. This was the first one that I wrote huh. in Southeast Iowa. So I'm kind of excited about getting that back out because I really enjoyed that one. And the first book really, it, it's one of those ones that it was like the book of my heart because that book concept came about while my husband was deployed. Hmm. And so I didn't get written while he was deployed. It got writ, wrote many years later, but it, it was one that sat around in my head for a while until I could actually get it out. So I'd like to see that back out there. So, um, yeah, I'm more active on Instagram and Facebook than anything else, but people can email me. I have contacts through my website and, um, it's not hard to figure out how to email me. <laughs> so I don't, I hear more from readers through like Facebook messenger <laughs> than I do through email, but yeah, those are good places to get a hold of me. I can't believe how quickly our time has just flown by. We've been chatting with author Winter Austin, whose new book is the Straight for the Kill, the third in her series. I want to thank Winter for taking time to visit virtually with the Poison Pen and thank all of those tuning in to another author chat with the Poison Pen Bookstore. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them, and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.